Amen. You can be seated. What's up, Vertical? New Year, new us, right? Man, excited to be here. Uh, if I haven't got to meet you, man, I met so many new people in the lobby this morning. If I didn't get to meet you, my name's Austin Roberts. I'm one of the teaching pastors here, and I'm so excited that you've decided to spend uh, the first Sunday of the year here with us. Um, we were not in the building last week. We took a little, a little break off to give the staff some rest, the volunteers some rest, but we're excited to be back, and I feel rested, and I'm a little energetic, like I'm ready to go. We got a new series. It's a packed room. It's a good year. I'm ready to go. Um, I've been thinking just kind of about getting into this new year and what we want for you guys and what we've been praying for you guys. Um, And I just want you to know that you guys have been on our hearts uh, as we go into the new year. And we're praying towards not only what God is calling us into as a church, but also what God is calling you and your family into in this new year. And uh, we're just excited for what's coming. I'm I'm praying that it's going to be a a blissful year for you, a a really blessed year for you. And that hopefully when we wrap back around this time next year, we're going to look back and just be amazed at what God has done over the last year. Um, I do want to start with a little honesty this morning, if that's okay. Are we okay with, are we awake enough for some honesty early in the morning? So I was journaling going into the year because... I like to hear myself talk, I guess. That's why I do this as a job, maybe. I don't know. But I, I was journaling going into the year, and I was thinking, like, oh, no. I think I'm becoming one of them, you know? Uh, those New Year's resolution people, do you know those people? I, like, honestly, before 2024, I'm still getting used to that, I kind of loathed New Year's resolution people. If I'm honest, it really bothered me. Like, I, I, I don't know. I had to, like, think about why it irritated me so much, but, like, I would avoid, I would avoid Instagram like it was the gym in January just because I didn't want to see all the life improvement y'all were about to go through. You know what I mean? I just, I, I didn't love it. There are a few places that, like, stack up on New Year's Day. Instagram is one of them. The gym is one of them. AA meetings start to get really full, those sorts of things, you know? And I'm just like, I'm just gonna wait this out. But I was getting into this year and I was thinking like, oh no, I think, I think I'm becoming one of them because I guess I've come to the self-realization that I'm not um, perfect or something like that. And so I'm just getting ready for the new year and I'm writing down a short list of things that I wanna be better at this year, but it made me think, it made me wonder, why is it that we are so uncomfortable, some of us, are so uncomfortable with New Year's resolutions? Why does it drive us crazy to hear about other people's growth? And I was thinking, like, there are a couple of reasons this could take place, right? Maybe it's purely practical. Maybe, maybe you look at New Year's resolutions as purely practical and you say, hey, I feel like this is a little bit of a cliche, and also my uh, experience will tell me that these changes are probably not going to last. That's, at 90% of the time, that's what I've seen. Maybe um, for you, it's, it's, it's just very personal. You're like, I know that the changes that I need to make, I don't really have time for. It's a time crunch. I don't have time to do the things that will actually grow me. Or, or maybe you're saying, like, I would have to have an environment change to change the things that need to happen in my life, and I'm not in a position to do that. When I was writing about this this year and thinking about why is it that New Year's resolutions kind of give me the ick, I was like, I think that it is purely because it brings me into a place where I have to admit that there are some things that I need to work on. I don't like that, and I sure don't like to put that out into the world for people to read or critique or think about or say, yeah, he really is pretty bad at that now that I think about it. (laughs) I don't love that. And I was writing down in the word that I kind of kept coming to in this whole New Year's resolution growth thing was vulnerability. I don't like vulnerability. It's, it's not something that I enjoy. 
And man, you know, in thinking about that word, getting into this new year, and even looking into the scripture that we're going to be in today, thinking about vulnerability, I was like, man, I feel like we've all kind of been fooled a little bit. Because in modern day America, right, in Western culture, we will try and convince you that we love vulnerability. Like 2024, it's gonna be the new thing, right? It's all the rage, vulnerability everywhere. But what we really love is secondhand vulnerability, right? I love to hear you be vulnerable. <laughs> like, man, that fills me up. I'm like, yeah, he's so brave. <laughs> I love to hear somebody else be vulnerable, but when it comes to me, I lock up. Like, I lock up. There are people who sit with me weekly on a regular basis, and they know I am not super comfortable sharing in that way. I'm great when I have notes, you know. <laughs> but I'm not so good at this whole vulnerable thing. I was reading this past week, uh, with Brene Brown, and she's a professor, she's a best-selling author, and she's kind of the definitive voice on vulnerability. And she actually tells us that secondhand vulnerability, that's what we'll call it, it's most often perceived as courage. We see it as brave. We see it as something that's admirable or honorable. But usually first-hand vulnerability, for most people, when we start to experience that, when we're drawn into that place, it feels like weakness. And I really love that. Because both of those are really big human emotions. Courage, being inspired, and weakness. That's something that most people have a good understanding of. Vulnerability brings out something very human about us, and I think that that is why we see God not only illuminate, but really implement chunks of vulnerability into the very first lesson that he teaches mankind. At the very beginning of the book, you know, no matter your relationship with church, no matter if you grew up in church, you've spent some time out of church, you've been in church your whole life, you probably are pretty aware of the creation narrative, right? You understand the creation story. There are a few different views on it, but it's, it's, it's pretty A to B. We know what that story looks like. We know that in the very beginning, God was there, and the earth was without form and contents. There wasn't anything there. It was like an open canvas, and it was, it was very, very dark, the Bible says. And, and a lot of times we equate darkness with evil, but it wasn't evil. It was actually warm with the presence of God. That's what we read here. And then we see God st start this creation process. We, we know that he spoke light into existence not out of something else, but from his self. And for the first time, there was contrast between day and night. And the next step that God spoke was the waters, right? He spoke the waters into existence with their very deep chasms, and he spoke the skies into existence with their wind-blown clouds being flown around. And next, out of those waters, he commanded the mountains to rise up, and they came up so high that the valleys were open where we could see them. And then he, he went to work about what would live in those mountains and in the oceans. We see that he spoke the stars into the galaxy, the one that was closest to us would warm our days and make it bright and sunny where we could enjoy it like today. He filled the oceans with fish. He placed the birds in the sky so that they could soar and he filled the earth with all the creatures that we could name. And then very last, saving his best for last, he created man. We all know this story, but we know that he made man special, right? If we hop into Genesis 1, before we ever get to that vulnerability piece, we see that God is speaking something new into life. Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man, you know it, in our own image. Let us make man in our own image according to our own likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea and the birds of the sky and the livestock and the whole earth and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. 
vertical, this is a really big statement that I don't want to bypass at the beginning of the year. You know, really often in church culture, we'll like pick phrases like made in his own image and say them for like decades and decades and decades and even like make them a political point but never explore what does this mean? I want to take the time to do that really quickly because it's going to be important when we get to what happens to the man and the woman, right? God made man in his own image. What does that mean? Well, first, it means that we are able to comprehend, right? There are distinct traces of the same ingenuity that God used to create those galaxies within our brains, We see that man, from God's intelligence, can create systems and solve problems. There are huge medical advancements. Man writes literature, and he even creates languages. We know that from, like, penicillin to squatty potties, we are inspired by God, right? Everybody there? (laughs) I'm trying to wake us up. Let's go. We know that we can comprehend things on a level that other people cannot, and that's directly from God. That, that design part of God's brain, that is in us. Second, we see that we are a spirit-filled construction, right? Even the, the tall, I think about the tallest mountains on the continent. I'm 30 years old, right? I turned 30 this year, and I've been really lucky to get to climb and run around and play on some of the biggest mountains in, on, like on our continent. And you see them, and you're like, I can't believe that's so big. It just feels so powerful when the wind hits you up there. I also have been like in the ocean and and, and the tide pulls you and it can push a grown man down. And I'm a small grown man and I'm really bad at surfing so I know how the ocean can push you down, right? But when you think about it, you look at the way that we are designed, even the most powerful parts of our planet don't contain the same power that God has given us to propel us forward in life. There's a part of us, a spiritual part of us, that soul part of us that God has gifted us and there's nothing quite as powerful as that on the planet. That's directly from God. And then lastly, lastly, we are the masterpiece of God's creativity. And I love this point. Like a father that finds real joy in seeing their, seeing their kid take place, God holds mankind in a very different kind of place as the rest of the world. He gave them a purpose. He gave them a place. He gave them preeminence over everything. We see him do that with the animals. One of my favorite books, Mastery by Robert Greene, he talks about a good architect or a designer, and he says the best designers, they're able to take the most interesting part of themselves and put it into their work. And that's exactly what we see God do when he's designing man. I want to take the most interesting parts of myself and place it in this thing that I've been creating and love so much. When we're planning this series, I was kind of getting ready with Nate, um, and we were talking about it, and I loved what he said. It was so simple, but it made so much sense. Man is God's best. I am God's best. You are God's best. When it comes to our design, he saved the best parts of himself for this. And it's really important that we remember that going forward because the next chapter of man's history wasn't near as beautiful, right? We know where we're going. We aren't sure how long mankind walked with God, but we do know that at some point he forfeited the ability to do so, right? Forfeited as in he made mistakes. And you probably know from experience that mistakes require a certain amount of vulnerability to mop up adequately. And so we see God kind of invite the man and his wife into that. 
And there's a play-by-play of it, right? We can read it in the scripture. We know this part of the story too. God had given the man and the woman a beautiful place to live in the garden. He said, hey, take advantage of it. Just use it all. Enjoy it, but don't eat of that tree. We see God's enemies show up and he deceives man and woman and, and, and does this thing that sin so often does and calls into question if God's interest, best interest is actually for you, right? It's part deception, part a disobedience that we water and eventually they make the mistake that means that they can no longer be with God and they see themselves for the first time accurately and what do they do? What do we do when we feel guilt or shame? They hid. And man, you can hear the hurt in God's voice as this passage proceeds. In Genesis 3, we'll start in verse 8, it says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And we know that's typically when he would come to walk with them, like neighbors will walk. Like I have some little old ladies that walk around my neighborhood. It's time of the evening breeze, baby, and God was there for his walk. The Lord was walking in the garden at that time of the evening breeze, and they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, where are you? I want to pause here because this is important. Did you ever think like this is a little cruel of God to ask man where he was? I I did. What this immediately took me back to a couple of weeks when I was looking at this was, I remember coming home from that party I wasn't supposed to be at, and my parents saying, how was your night? It was great. <laughs> what do you know? I honestly thought it was kind of cruel. Like, I was like, what? God is infinite. God knows everything. He doesn't have to play hide and seek with the man and the woman after they sin. Why can't he just come out to them and say, hey, I'm angry at you? But I'm reading in this passage, and I realize I'm familiar with this question. Where are you? Man, I, for the last few months, I've had the privilege to get to sit with a circle of men on Tuesday nights, and I should have done it sooner, but I didn't, but they ask each other three questions, right? And the first one is, where are you? And when I first got there, I didn't really know how to answer that, and sometimes I still don't really know how to answer that, but what I'm learning over time is that question, the answer to that question, is not the most important part of the evening, And what was about to happen in the garden there is not the most important part of what is about to happen. We see that this is a tactic of God. This is is something that God does so often, and it's not so that we can just confess our sins and he can make us feel bad about it. No, he is inviting us into the conversation by asking, where are you? So often, we don't know how to talk to God. Do you ever sit in your car and say you've had the worst day in your life, or you get home and you say, I don't even know how to start this prayer. I know I'm supposed to be praying, but I don't know how to start this prayer. He's inviting them into this conversation. And we see this is something that Jesus does as well. This is a strategy that Jesus implements in the relationships with people that he loves. Who do you say that I am? Simon, do you love me? Woman, where are your accusers? He's inviting them into their own story. And man, it's been a beautiful thing for me on Tuesday nights to get to sit in a circle of men and say, I don't know that I could actually answer before I was here where I am, but now that I've started talking, I'm ready to answer much bigger questions. And that's exactly what we see God do here. He asks the man and the woman, where are you? And they start talking. It works. Verse 10 
And he, the man, said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And then God asked, well, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man replied, deflecting. The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, so I ate it. And then God turns to the woman. He asked the woman, what have you done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, so I ate. Is everybody familiar with this? We kind of know this story. It's not just that we're familiar with the story. I think we're probably familiar with the language around it too, or at least I am. I've done this thing, and maybe it was when I came home from the party, or maybe it was when I had to have an uncomfortable conversation with my wife or my boss or maybe even God. But when we start deflecting, it starts hinting towards the fact that there's some guilt or some shame there that we need to talk about. Man, shame, I, I could spend, we could spend weeks talking about shame, but we're gonna hit on it for just a little bit here because without shame, there isn't, there's also no vulnerability, right? Those two things go hand in hand. And you can picture this frenzy that's coming up in Genesis. These words aren't spoken by somebody that is comfortable. No, they've been found out. Their voices are raised as they're talking about this. It's not a confession. They're operating out of that shame. We read a book in our discipleship process that I've, I've really grown to love. It's by a pastor and author named Pete Scazzaro, and he talks about the difference between shame and guilt. He says that shame has to do with uh, feelings about who we are, and guilt is related to our feelings about what we do. But they both rob us of the profound experience that we are God's beloved children. Somebody, somebody much wiser than me, a man much wiser than me told me one time, right? Guilt says, I've made a mistake. Shame tells me I am a mistake. And we look to see where Adam and Eve are in the situation and, and, and we have to imagine that they're feeling a lot of that shame based on their deflection. You know, some things that I'm learning about shame in, over the past couple of weeks while I've been reading about it and writing about it, we all have shame right? None of us want to talk about shame. But third, the longer we go without talking about our shame, the more it eats away at us inside. And you find yourself years down the road, kind of a shell of who you were, and you realize that the shame over something that may not have even been that big of a deal has wrecked your life. That's not where God wants them to be. Studies show that there's a direct correlation between a person's feeling of shame and their experience with addiction or eating disorders. They're way more likely to take part in violence or abuse or even have suicidal thoughts. And it's such a, such a heartbreaking thing to think about people, a person who is made in the image of God, designed like nothing else on the planet, to be eaten away by something like this but we all experience it. So what do we do? What do you do with that shame? The more that I've been reading in this Genesis passage, the more I look at the entirety of scripture, because because this creation story, it sets the baseline for the entirety of scripture. It's a foundation for the way that God shows affection for us. The more I begin to realize that so often, 
when, when, when I'm in the throes of trying to figure out what this shame thing is, what we come to, what we all end up coming to is that whether we like it or not, God often produces the solution from our problems. God often takes the obstacles that we're looking at and makes them the vehicle by which he shows up in our life. And we see this countless times in the scripture. So many times we see men who have very real problems. And that becomes the avenue by which they are saved by God. And so I'm, I'm piecing together this vulnerability piece, this shame piece, and the fact that God wants to use things that I'm not comfortable with to make me the man that he wants me to be. I realize the problem is the answer. Vulnerability may be painful, but it's also the way, only way that shame can be beaten. We don't enjoy vulnerability. It's not fun. It's not fun to say that we are not the people that we want to be. But if we don't take part in vulnerability, shame will be the overarching story over our lives. Going back to Brene Brown, I love what she said because it leads us directly to the gospel. Vulnerability is the birthplace of innovation, of change, and of creativity. And you know, sometimes I get emails from people and they're like, Austin, I wish you would just read the Bible and, and not talk about other authors, but you read. But I look at that quote and I think, no, that's exactly right because what's more innovative and what's more creative than the way that God was able to look at our sin problem and say, hey, I'm going to dream up a fix for that through the sacrifice of my son. It wasn't something that anybody saw coming. It was so innovative. It was so creative. It was so life-changing for all of us. The first man and woman made a mistake causing our separation from God, but God so loved the world overwhelmingly, passionately, that he sent his son to die in our place. How creative, how innovative, how life-changing. It isn't just that we are God's best. It's that God wants the best for us. And he's willing to go to great lengths to make sure that that happens. You know, I grew up in a church, and I think I believed for a very long time that God was kind of this huffy old man in the sky, and he was agitated at my situation, and he was probably a little bit aggravated that he was having to send his son to die for me. But we don't see that in Scripture. I haven't read that in Scripture. No, actually, I see God being quite vulnerable by telling, him exact, or telling me exactly how he feels about me and how willing he was to make that sacrifice. Jeremiah 31, hey Austin, my love is everlasting. It's eternal. John 10, 10, hey Austin, it's not just that I want life for you, I want an abundant life for you. Romans 5, 8, classic. Austin, I loved you so much that even while you were making mistakes, you hadn't even made it home yet to get asked by your mom what you were doing. I love you, and I'd sent my son to die for you before you even knew that that was possible. This is God stepping into vulnerability and him saying, I want what's best for you because I love you. So rounding the corner on the morning and how we're kicking off this series, Human, how we're kicking off this year, what do you do? You may be saying, like, yes, vulnerability is important, Austin. Thank you. I appreciate that. 
But really, logistically, honestly, how do we step into vulnerability and step into this place where we can start to work on this shame the way that God wants us to? It's this. You have to be seen. You have to be seen. And I mean really seen. And there's two ways in which this takes place. The first is you have to be seen by God. And maybe it's not even that you have to be seen by God, but we have to understand that we are seen by God. Every part of our lives, every every mistake that we have made, that he has seen us and he loves us despite that. We have to come to grips with the fact that there is a God out there that could love you for you and me for me despite the mistakes that we've made and help us get to that place where we look more and more like his son. That's what the gospel is. We have to be seen by God. And secondly, we have to be seen by other people. We have to be seen by other people. You need to be seen truly by others. Here's the hard truth that I've been learning so far the last six months or so. Neither vulnerability nor processing guilt can actually happen in isolation. It doesn't work that way. You know what happens in isolation? Shame. You only need a couple of things to grow some shame, right? You need solitude, silence, maybe some judgment from the past. Shame is what grows in isolation, but we see that we have been invited into this connection with other people. That's what church is. We've been invited into this connection with other people. How heartbreaking would it be for us if we try and live this Christian life without the gift of other people that God has given us? And You know, if I'm being completely honest, men, I'm looking at us directly when I say that because we struggle with that mightily. I don't know when our culture took for granted this idea that me being vulnerable with another man makes me weak. But I grew up with that. Several weeks ago, I was sitting in that same circle with a couple of guys, and and, and I was listening to them talk to one another, and I said, I didn't know that another man could talk to a man that way. What is it about our culture that makes it this way? And for whatever reason, in our churches, we have this beautiful picture, this painted picture of what the perfect woman is. You probably know the chapter, Proverbs 31. And for me, it was like, all right, congratulations, congrats, uh, congratulations on graduating. Now go find you that Proverbs 31 woman. And that's beautiful, and, and, and that's what we want women to grow up like, men. But to be honest, do we ever think about what it takes to be the type of man that could actually attain a Proverbs 31 woman? Heads up, it tells us in the chapter. Did you know that? Somebody pointed this out to me the other day, and it blew my mind. Where is a Proverbs 31 woman's husband? Proverbs 31, 23. Her husband is known at the city gates where he sits among the elders of the land. Some other translations say it this way. Her husband can be found at the gates where he is respected because he deliberates with the wise men of the city. Men, it is not enough just to find that perfect woman to live your life with because we are completely capable of ruining that Proverbs 31 woman. (laughs) It's the truth. So here's my challenge, and not just for men. I pick on men because that's where I am personally. But here's the challenge. Have you been seen by someone who loves you enough to hold you accountable? Have you been seen by someone who loves you enough when they haven't heard from you in a few weeks to say, hey, I haven't heard from you. How is that thing that we talked about? 
Have you been seen regularly by somebody that loves Jesus so much that they not only want themselves to look like him, but want you to look like him? We have to come to the place where we can share our shame, where we can be vulnerable to speak and have somebody remind us what God looks like and how he looks at us. You know, Vertical, since that day in the garden, there's a part of ourself that wants to say small and unseen. And I've been thinking about that part of us a lot lately. And that's, that's directly from the enemy, right? That's what the enemy of God wants. He wants us to be small. He wants us to be stagnant and not growing and unoriginal and all these things. I guess if we're trying to get our minds right to go into this next year, I want this place to be a spot where we can be vulnerable about where we really are. And so over the next few minutes, we're gonna sing, we're gonna engage in worship, but what I really want you to pray about and what I want you to think about is, have you been seen? And, and maybe your answer is no. I have not acknowledged that I've been seen by God. And I would just invite you into that moment, into that peace that comes with knowing that there's a God of the universe that loves you for you. Maybe you need to think about the person you need to reach out to and say, hey, I need to be seen by somebody regularly and so I'm gonna be honest with you and we have to do life together because I need that. Maybe you have those people in your life. Maybe you've been seen by God and you've accepted that grace that comes from his son and you just need to be seen this morning worshiping because of that. I just wanna invite you into that. It's a beautiful thing to be able to stand in front of God and say, you know me and I know you. And that's all that matters. I've got my mistakes, but I'm working towards it. I'm growing. That's who I want us to be this year. That's what it means to be human. Let me pray for you. Father God, I thank you for this morning time we get to spend together. God, I pray over the shame in the room. I pray that this would be a place where shame doesn't exist, where we aren't silent enough or quiet enough to let shame exist, that you put people in our lives who are just, man, bulls in a china shop, and, and, and they don't let us sit in that place of isolation. God, for the person in the room who is afraid to be seen by you, God, I pray that they wouldn't feel guilt over their past, I pray that they would have an overwhelming peace of your spirit that lets them know, look, I see your mistakes, but I love you. That's why I sent my son. God, we talk about religion to relationship and, and it's important and it's a place that, this is a place that wants to be known for that, but we can't do that in isolation, Lord. Let this be a year where new connections are made and com community has grown. And because of that, men and women and their families are growing as well. Thank you for this time. We love you and praise you. Amen.